This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Loopcast. I'm Chelsea Damon, and I am very excited today to have what I'm calling an all-star cast because it's really a set of amazing researchers, experts in the field of terrorism, radicalization. And I'm just so excited to actually be able to have everyone on the same schedule on the same day because these guests are always busy. So I want to welcome Colin Clark on the show, Cynthia Miller Idris, John Horgan and Mubin Sheikh. And for our listeners, just in case you might not know who they are, Colin Clark is a senior research fellow at the Soufan Center. And Cynthia Miller Idris is a professor in the School of Public Affairs, the School of Education, and also the director of the Polarization and Extremism Research and Innovation Lab at American University in Washington, DC. John Horgan is a distinguished professor at Georgia State University, and he's also the director of the Violent Extremism Research Group. And last but not least, Mubin Sheikh is a professor of public safety at Seneca College and also a counter-extremism consultant in Canada. So after that great introduction, thank you all for being on the Loopcast. Thanks for having us. Yay. Pleasure. <laughs> Excited to be here. Thank you. We're going to talk today about an article that came out in Slate, I think it was about November 24th, and it discussed what keeps all of you up at night. It's a great quote, I think that was John Horgan actually, that they quoted, um, but it's about radicalization and concepts of Trump's fringe now that the elections have been decided. And of course, if we've watched the news, we've seen lots of things happening with protests, um, lawsuits, you name it. <laughs> so why don't we discuss what this time means, especially for here in the States? So we have a lot of people, it's almost half of the population that, of course, voted for Trump. I think if the, the numbers are around there, but Biden won. And we have all these attempts to potentially overturn the elections and all the different lawsuits that have been going on. But within all of this, we have a lot of people here in America that feel like potentially the elections didn't go the way they wanted it to. And we have a lot of groups here in America, too, that we've seen increase throughout the last number of years. So I'm going to hand over the floor. We're going to kind of freestyle this because we have so many people on the show today as guests. But I'm going to hand over the floor and let one of you kind of discuss what this means for the future and why this keeps you up at night. Why don't we have Dr. Horgan start since, um, sure. since the quote was from him about keeping being kept up at night. Sure, thank you, Chelsea. Um, gosh, you know, when you were just saying there, you know, how many weeks ago that, that the, the, the article actually came out, it seems like such a long time ago already. Um, I, I'm still kept awake at night, um, um, and I honestly, I don't think I still have enough perspective or distance from everything that's going on to just fully appreciate how bad things 
have gotten. Um, I, I, I think, you know, I mean, at the risk of sounding alarmist, but I, I think we're going to be dealing with the legacy of the last four years for um, a generation. Um, I mean, you know, I, I, I sort of, I see the world through my own little tiny lenses as someone who studies terrorism, but, but from a broader perspective, thinking about um, um, the way in which we have become so polarized on, 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 on a very, very, very fundamental level. And, and so, you know, there's one set of things I'm always thinking about in terms of, you know, what might terrorism look like over the next couple of years or what might this kind of terrorism look like or that kind of terrorism look like. But, but, but the thing I'm more worried about is, is you know, not just those sorts of things, but the, but the fact that I don't think we are, we're ready to face these kinds of threats and let alone appreciate what they might be. But I, I don't think that as a, a country, as a nation, as a, as a community or a set of communities, I worry about our lack of preparedness. I worry about our inability to just have conversations about difficult and contentious things anymore. So, so I think um, this is probably nothing you, you haven't already heard you know, a million times from other people, but um, you know, I'm exhausted and stressed out and I'm, and I'm worried about where we are. Yeah, I'll jump onto that, um, Cynthia here. I, you know, I will say I'm also not sleeping very well. And um, so I was up the last couple of nights between the hours of like three and 5.30. And, and so I was thinking while John was talking about kind of why, why is it that I'm not sleeping well either? And, and there are a number of different things going on. One I think is the kind of existential concerns that, that we just heard about that I'm, I am really worried about. Um, the state of the country and polarization and the vulnerability that people seem to have to extraordinarily, um, you know, extreme conspiracy theories uh, and those intersections with um, with anti-vax and anti-government sentiments in ways that I worry about, you know, kind of not just the impacts on kind of public safety or violence as I usually worry about, but also on public health and democracy itself, right? And so um, so this week I've been not sleeping, I think, because we released this report on QAnon and, and just thinking about what that means in terms of disinformation as an epidemic and, and what's happening. But I also sometimes am not sleeping because I worry about, and this is an interesting thing to talk about in a podcast that I'm, I talk differently in a podcast or would talk differently in a podcast than I would in where I know I'm only going to get a couple of quotes in. Um, because I worry a lot about this question about how to balance alarmism with, um, with not being alarmist, right? And so what am I really worried about myself versus what, what do I think is important to share? Um, and could I get taken out of context or, you know, so I worry about my own role, I guess, as I get a bigger platform and being careful um, and how that those things get received and so I also had a piece come out this week in Foreign Affairs that's circulating a lot more than I thought it would and in good ways and that's terrific, but I, it, it just makes me conscious of the responsibility of having a platform, I guess. And, um, and so, so sometimes when I'm not sleeping, it's also thinking about what's the right way to engage and responsibly and balance my, my own concerns and what I'm not sleeping about with what I know from evidence and, um, and what I can safely say versus what I'm most worried about that I wouldn't say. I don't know if that makes sense, but those are the kinds of self-doubt 
plagues in the middle of the night of, of anxious academics are part, is part of the story, I think, for me. This is Colin Clark. I, I want to uh, agree with both what, um, what Cynthia said and, and what John said. I mean, I think especially what resonated with me with what John said is that we're not ready to face these kinds of threats as a country. Um, not only are we unable to face them just on a basic, you know, person to person level, right, of like, John's right, we, we can't have hard conversations anymore, because we're so polarized, the partisanship is at record levels, and people that we used to kindly disagree with, and, you know, maybe uh, discuss issues over a beer, and laugh about our differences, it's now become adversarial, and, and the, the tensions are heightened. And I feel that in my own personal life and in my family relationships. Um, and just think about how that plays out in a country of 330 million people. But I also think we're not prepared at a legal and policy level. I mean, we still don't have a domestic terrorism statute. And I know that there's you know varying degrees of that conversation and we need to think about that in a, in a smart way, but we're really unprepared from, uh, from that perspective. We've been fighting the so-called global war on terrorism for two decades. We've been narrowly focused on a subset of violent non-state actors. All the while, you know, on our own soil, we've had the growth of uh, anti-government extremism, uh, white supremacy. Uh, people are anxious, they're armed, and they're angry. And, and that's not a good combination. They also, you know, I wrote a piece for the LA Times a couple of weeks ago this effort to delegitimize the, the Biden administration and the election writ large is going to have serious effects down the road uh, of people taking action. And I think we're going to unfortunately see some, some bad incidents in this country. And when we do the forensics on that, much of it will be able to be traced back to, well, this election was stolen and this guy's not legitimate. So think back to the, the Comet Ping Pong Comet Pizza Edgar Welch thought he was doing the right thing. He was convinced of it at the time. And, and many people will feel the same, even though they'll be committing acts of terrorism. Yeah, well, being here, uh, of course, observing from Canada, you know, we, uh, we kind of think of ourselves up here, kind of, uh, you know, uh, uh, immune from these sorts of things. We, we like to see ourselves as not having the level of, you know, this hyper-partisanship that you see in the U.S., but you know we have our own uh, influences that are actually coming from the U.S. into Canada, uh, not just the anti-vaxxers. Now we're having all the so-called freedom rallies of anti-maskers uh, who want to kind of go out and uh, you know really rebel against the authorities that are that are in power. And it's it's kind of uh, analogous because we have uh, with with uh, Justin Trudeau who became the prime minister, uh, there was a lot of animosity, a lot of hostility uh, because he won. And we, we saw, you know, right afterwards, this acceleration of uh, groups and individuals that started to coalesce around this anti-government, you know, uh, rejecting the authority of the party that won. And when we look at what's happening in the U.S., I, I see a similar trend developing in that basically it's, it's almost like an immaturity of, you know, my side lost. And so it's like when we used to play games when we were kids, and if you lost, it was because the other one was cheating, right? It wasn't because you lost. It was always some other reason that you could, you know, identify that was external to your own actions. And so, uh, so what, what I'm seeing, at least, is this almost shift towards uh, an, an immaturity of even epistemology of, like, where people even get knowledge by which they they interpret the world 
uh, in front of them. And this is, a, this is a big problem because we see that in their interpretations, they're now going to what you know we would like to consider as quote unquote normal rational people as abnormal and as irrational. And I think that's a really important point. Actually, everything that all of you have said are feelings that I have and both as a researcher and also in personal interactions with people. It's really hard to hold a conversation if you have different political views here in the United States now, because like Colin said, they become almost this us against them narrative, which of course we see greatly in extremism and terrorism, but it's really polarizing people and friends won't talk to you anymore because you don't hold the same political beliefs. And just in my personal life, I see that as very worrying and frightening, but we see it on this large scale here in the States. And I think what Mubin was saying about this reluctance to have accountability for the elections, both from our administration here in the States, as well as those on Capitol Hill, it really does influence the public, like these narratives from the hierarchy and what used to be what many could consider trusted sources are now really hard to trust for some and for others, they blindly trust. And then we have all of these other ways of getting information, the internet, blogs, other podcasts and so forth. So I wanted to talk about that a bit. Like, how do you see this structure of information coming from the higher echelons of what maybe we should have in the past been able to rely on as truth versus some of the more fringe communication networks like message boards and the internet. So I will hand it over to whoever would like to start off with that one. Well, I can jump in on that first. Um, this is Cynthia, I guess I have the other, it's it just distinguished me from Chelsea's voice. <laughs> um, but, uh, um, you know, I think there are a couple different things going on. And one is the way in which this new, the broad ecosystem of of sources where people get their information and their news um, come from, even if it's not fake news, even if it's not disinformation or misinformation, it's just now so broad and so polarized itself that you increasingly have people who kind of live in filter bubbles or echo chambers where they're just not hearing um, alternative views enough. And so, and, and then also not, you know, we're more polarized ourselves as, as several of us have mentioned about in our personal lives, not, not able to have kind of, you know, dialogue with people who view things differently um, and things are very much positioned in us versus them kind of polarized way. So I, I do think part of what's happening is the spread of, you know, both in, in kind of alternative social media, but also in social media in general, and then the ever more polarizing mainstream media that is just changing. And, and you can really see this, like when I you know, have been on, you know, viewer call-in shows or listener call-in shows, you can really hear the echoes of what they're saying from, you know, from which kind of mainstream news channel they listen to, right? Whether they think white supremacy is a hoax, right? For example, and that comes right after, you know, a, a, a mainstream news host said that, right? So you can, you can hear those echoes and how much the, the news shapes. And then also, of course, as you were pointing out, Chelsea, the the legitimation and the normalization of some extraordinarily polarizing language and dehumanizing language even from 
both from campaign and rally language from President Trump, but also others in the administration and other elected officials um, has kind of empowered, I think, some of that language, um, misogynistic, anti-immigrant, anti-Muslim language that, you know, has um, become much more normalized. And I think that filters down also into ordinary interactions in really difficult ways. And th this is John, if I may, uh, just just to to to, to um, build on a couple of uh, Cynthia's points there. You know, it, it struck me just listening to Cynthia. Um, I think it's also hard to separate. Um, maybe it's impossible to separate out the effects of the pandemic from this too. Um, you know, and to to go back to the, the, the why you opened us up with Chelsea. You know, the, the stress and anxiety. I think that stress and exhaustion and uncertainty, and I think just the sheer weight of, of dealing with day-to-day -day reality at the minute for many, I think has led people into this, this sort of this spiral of, of dread. You know, I mean, thinking is very taxing. It's not, it's not something that, you know, many of us have the luxury for anymore. And so um, I think we've become even more self-selecting in our, in our information sources. Um, Mubin mentioned earlier, you know, um, the, the sort of this polarization from 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 a neighbor's view, I suppose. It, um, you know, myself being a sort of a you know um, a visitor to the shores, to these shores, and now a citizen, um, I've always been fascinated by how here in the U.S. Um, political affiliation has been a, a you know a really neat shorthand for categorizing people into a few different buckets. I think that has 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 really and truly spiraled in the last two to three um, uh, years now, where um, it has become almost tribal in, in in the way in which we think about other people, and that has, I, I you know, I think it is it is it is starting to close us off from being even willing to consider other people's point of view, let alone engage with them. Hey, this is Colin Clark. I, I would just say, I, I think, you know, a lot of where we are now, we, we got to uh, over the last couple of years, this constant steady drumbeat of fake news, of the onslaught of disinformation of, nope, that's not really up, that's down. Oh, what you're seeing is not true. Uh, and, and there's the constant repetitive nature of, of lies. There's really no other way to, to sugarcoat it from the administration has you know, made people numb to to what the truth is. And so, you know, when the when the, the commander in chief, I mean, it, it's still really strange to me. He's that that the president can get up there and talk about networks like Breitbart and and OAN or or whatever it is. And people are like, yeah, that that's a good one. Or come on, guys, let's all go over to parlor. Uh, it, it's just very bizarre uh, that the fringe has become the mainstream. And I think, you know, it's, it's led to the creation of this toxic culture where people that, you know, don't know where to look for, for the right news. And, and they think that, um, what they're, what they're consuming is true. And, and, you know, what everybody else is looking at, um, is wrong. So, and, and have other things at play here, like the Russians playing in this space, uh, and amplifying disinformation. So, um, I think we're in a bad spot in terms of digital literacy and being able to understand what's real from what's not. And I don't see it getting better anytime soon. And Colin, uh, you know, and yet uh, the contradiction here is that we find it irresistible uh, to, 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 to disengage from it. Um, you know, I mean, it's, it, 
this is this is part of I think one of just the insidious qualities of social media. I mean, it it it, it works because we engage with this sort of material that you know gets gets our blood boiling, gets our um, uh, gets our, our 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 anger levels and blood pressure up, if you like. And so it's 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 too irresistible for us to know better. Completely agree. I mean, I thought I literally thought the same thing this morning when I you know logged on to Twitter and I saw Ann Coulter trending, and I thought. <laughs> Oh, God. But but you know what? I clicked to see what she said. And then I thought to myself, I'm feeding into it. Why do I care what this this woman said? I mean, she couldn't be more irrelevant to my life and the way I think about policy. But yet here I was seeing, you know, her latest comments on whatever, uh, you know, because I saw it there trending. And And I think I thought to myself, this lady should be like a tree in the forest. If she falls and no one's around to hear it, does she really happen? Does she exist? We should just take the oxygen away from these people. But John's right. It's, it's you know, in some ways, a self-fulfilling prophecy. You know, uh, Mubin here, talking about uh, both prophecies and uh, digital literacy. I want to just pick on that a little bit. Because uh, back to my comment, I talked about this epistemological crisis that uh, society is undergoing here. They, they just can't. A lot of people are unable to differentiate between what is fact and what is fiction. And, uh, you know, there's this one quote that I always, uh, I always remember and I always give it, uh, media gives terrorism a longevity it might not otherwise enjoy. And I just kind of look at that as a placeholder and see how, you know, the proliferation of these ideas, like in the name of free speech on top of that, because we say, no, no, you know what, uh, let, you know, sunlight is the best disinfectant, let, let the ideas out there and, you know, better ideas will counter it. But I'm not seeing that really. I'm seeing, you know, what we are seeing, I think, is uh, just one big experiment in confirmation bias, um, a whole host of other logical fallacies of thinking. But uh, the, the greatest one, I think, is, is this inability to determine what is truth. Uh, and, 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 you know, truth has become this, you know, very subjective thing now. You know, coming back to, uh, you know, Donald Trump, I mean, he was pushing, you know, a rigged election in 2016 uh, in an election that he won. And he kept doing this for years, for four years, right? And so we know that, you know, the more, especially in some of these, these groups where the more often they repeat these things, they, they come to believe these things as true and just to confirm whatever biases they already have. And just one more point uh, I'm kind of seeing just on the prophecy angle, it's almost like a new religious movement is forming. Uh, you have, you know, this uh, this radical preacher and ideologue, Donald Trump, um, and we, we've seen all these comparisons to him um, being this, you know, I am the one. I remember him looking up into the sky and saying, I am the one. Or, or this huge mobilization of, of Christians, of Christianity uh, in the U.S. that's just totally, you know, thrown their lot into this, you know, uh, orange calf idol uh, that they've pretty, pretty much, you know, begun to worship. So everything he says is, everything he says is truth. And anything that goes against it is false, is evil, is wrong. And so how do we even begin to break down that kind of dichotomy? Yeah, I want to um, jump on that really quickly, just to, to follow up both on something that Mubin uh, said and also uh, that John said. Um, the first one is is around. I, I can't agree more on the the kind of undermining of truth issue and and of facts. And you know, we saw that both in the kind of idea that there are alternative facts out there, but 
But, um, you know, we've been talking a lot here about the kind of organic ways that that happens from the bottom up, the way that people encounter things on social media or what happens. But I think it's also important to remember there's a real orchestrated way in which the far right has, you know, made attacks on higher education and um, and on expertise itself, both either through, you know, positioning sort of alternative facts, but also just trying to undermine universities and expertise by um, you know, uh, labeling it as propaganda or saying that there's a, you know, quote unquote, culturally Marxist plot, you know, within universities, anti-feminism. Just today, the Alternative for Germany announced, you know, that they uh, are trying to cancel gender studies, which is a frequent attack and has happened in other countries as well, um, because it's, you know, uh, the social constructionist idea around that gender and identity is, um, they argue, not in line with biological um, you know, approaches that should be privileged. So I think there's, you know, a lot of ways that higher education itself is a real battleground for these issues. And, and by, by extension of that, some of the expertise itself and, and, and that that happens. And then I also just on the issue of prophecy, I think, you know, one of the things that we've been talking about when we were working on the QAnon stuff this week in my lab is, and, and this month, um, over the last several weeks is this the sort of scaffolding around so much of this leaning into the sacred and the profane dichotomy or good and evil and the very black and white kind of thinking and how how much that links back to the kinds of things that John was talking about around the tremendous uncertainties that people feel right now and the sense of threat from a kind of unseen virus and I think you know I think we can't quite fully understand the Obviously, we know the trauma of grieving um, that people are going through just because of tremendous loss of life and, and knowing people who've been sick and have died. But the trauma of everyday life and the uncertainty and the choices you have to make and how stressful it is just to be out at the grocery store or to have to go work in, in person um, to expose yourself and your family and all of the things that have happened over the, the course of the pandemic and the way that that creates more vulnerabilities to these potentially religious, sacred and profane kinds of prophecies, but also um, some sort of black and white thinking about easy answers and a path to heroism, as, as Colin was saying, this idea that people think they're acting heroically. And we have seen that time and time again, where um, terrorist actors and violent actors will say things, you know, in Pittsburgh and 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 you know other places where they just they believe they are martyrs they are taking heroic action they're putting themselves out there they're behaving they think in moral ways and i think this moral framework as it relates to these issues around say are you rescuing children from a child trafficking ring are you you know that's a real mobilizing factor here and i think um, we're going to be feeling the repercussions of this emotional and psychological moment for a long time to come. And, and uh, you know, it, it makes me wonder what kind of post-traumatic or, or kind of therapeutic um, uh, help we'll get. The epidemic of depression we're seeing, suicide in young people, of anxiety in young people is, is just one, you know, outgrowth of that. And we have to, you know, we have to think about ways to address that kind of healing and emotional psychological needs within the public as well. And I think another thing that we haven't really touched on yet in the talk, the talk, excuse me, but is sort of the elephant in the room or the globe, should I say, is that in the last five years, we've seen a massive increase in right-wing global extremism. I think it's something like 320% in the last five years, which is 
astronomical. And I, I, I want to caveat this. I know a lot of people will say, well, why aren't you focusing on left-wing extremism? And there are people that are, there are researchers, um, Kurt Braddock and I touched on this in another Loopcast, which we still need to publish. But you know, the numbers just show that there's much more of an increase in the right-wing versus the left-wing extremism globally. So why don't we talk about that a bit and also how it is here in the U.S. with a lot of these groups and movements that we're seeing specifically very engaged in current affairs and events. But Chelsea, what about Antifa? What about Antifa? What about Antifa? Exactly. That's the, that's the only thing that someone will say to me as soon as I talk about, you know, left-wing versus right-wing as if it were some kind of contest as, you know, to which group was uh, a bigger threat. Uh, but I just always go back to the data. I mean, I remember watching on C-SPAN, please don't judge me, um, a couple of weeks ago. <laughs> uh, it was back to back. It was Ari Perliger talking about his book and then Michael Kenny talking about um, an article we wrote in War on the Rocks. And, and Michael's been doing a lot of Antifa stuff since. And I, I think I you were on C-SPAN as well earlier than that, though, Cynthia. And I, I was always the calls that yes, came yes. in it's a cross-section of america and you know i mean yeah, i have yeah. these conversations and it, it, with family members people that i'm very close with and the first question is what about antifa like aren't they taking helicopters right into suppressa like the the disinformation surrounding uh you know antifa yeah, right. is is amazing i mean you know dan crenshaw is probably not helping it with his his new video but this is the stuff that people really believe and and you know, by design, they don't want to hear anything negative about uh, radical right-wing extremism. And I, and I always am baffled by this of like, these aren't your people. Why are you claiming or defending neo-Nazis and white supremacists? Or maybe they are your people. I don't know. Yeah, I, I had to say, I also, I'm a fan of the, of the viewer call-in and the listener call-in shows for this reason, because I think it is a real pulse, you know, to the extent that it's easy to spend a lot of time living in Washington, D.C., you know, in a bubble around other people. Um, it is and, and that viewer call-in show for anybody who ever wants to go back and see those videos. It was call after call after call of, you know, of, uh, of, 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 even though it's supposed to rotate ideologically, it was a lot of folks who just um, don't believe that there, you know, was a real threat um, from white supremacist extremism. And, um, and I also, I, you know, I can, you can count, you know, just stake a bet on the fact that anytime I post anything on Twitter or anything I write, there's always a, the first, first few posts, there's somebody asking about what about Antifa or what about the radical left. Um, so I do think there's just a lot of propaganda out there. Um, and what I always say is, you know, this is actually the easiest question I get, which is because I think like Colin, it's just um, the data is crystal clear. And so there's, there's really, it's so clear that, you know, even DHS has finally said, you know, not just here, but in Germany this summer, you know, that right wing extremism there is the most lethal threat facing their nation. You know, the terminology differs between countries, but here, you know, DHS saying white supremacist extremism is the most lethal threat. And, you know, essentially on every measure we have available, propaganda and hate groups, plots foiled by the FBI, um, actual numbers of deaths, we have seen steady increases. And, um, and so I think, you know, the question is, for me, is always sort of why, and now what do we do about it? But I think those numbers are really clear. And so it does still sometimes surprise me that despite that, despite the relative, you know, we, I feel like I was part of a group of people who fought hard, it felt like, to get that message very clearly across. And we saw that in hearing after hearing, 
before Congress of people just flat out stating, you know, um, FBI figures and and folks like um, Ali Stefan and Saman Center doing great work on trying to get these reports out, you know, just really op-eds in the New York Times, um, folks doing as much public messaging as they could to make the data points clear. And I feel like just this year, the data points are finally clear. And now I think we really would, I would really like to see what the Biden administration is gonna do with this. And I think these questions about what, what tools come, what funding comes. I mean, the German government just in late November dedicated um, you know, groundbreaking resources to fight this with 89 new measures um, with, uh, you know, unprecedented amount of money over the next three years. I don't have the figure, right? But it's it's like in the, the number is not even in the millions. It's like a billion or more. Um, so I'll look it up, but it's uh, with another 150 million supposed to be earmarked in the in the 2021 budget. Um, and so we have other examples where people or countries are taking this really seriously and investing the money into it. Um, and even the UN, I think, is starting to on the counterterrorism um, subcommittee and the national security and the uh, uh, security council talking about uh, white supremacist and far-right extremism in ways that they really haven't so there is a turn i think toward it but i feel like we're still playing catch up and it is frustrating to see the slow pace of um of of action this is john yeah I, cynthia i'm dead curious to see what the biden administration does you know w with respect to you know what what we today call cve or pve i was really struck you know by the the 2019 um, um dhs framework a uh, strategic um framework that they put out on on what do they call it um uh, terrorism prevention and tar targeted violence, targeted and violence. Prevention. yeah yeah and and i gotta give kudos to to those people in DHS who managed to get that document out, because if you read it really closely, I mean, it actually does acknowledge um, the fact that, you know, our, our perception of what was previously assumed to be the be all and end all of threats has fundamentally changed now. And so there was a, a pretty stark acknowledgement of, of the dangers of extreme right wing violence and extreme right wing terrorism. And, and I'm really curious to see what that is going to look like in the years to come um, because you know no matter what we call it cve pve we're still gonna have to do it <laughs> Louvine here uh, if i can just jump in on that actually good segue because uh the tvtp program there uh they did just uh, announce a round of funding i think it was in september or october uh where they did earmark several million dollars uh, over the course of a few years to, to tackle this issue of of extremism of all kinds, of course, but but there does seem to be a focus on on right wing extremism. So so that's good, and then let's see what comes of it in in the next few years. Uh, but you know, you mentioned um, the whole Antifa, and, and what about Antifa? It's funny you mentioned that, Colin, because uh, you know I have some uh, some people on my networks who who do that all the time. It's like if I post any article on the far right, it's like, well, what about Antifa? And 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 it's it's just what that's about my it? uncle? And I apologize. For yeah. That. <laughs> but it, it's like you know um it's what about ism right i mean they they don't want to imagine that they're in group uh and it and they are their people i mean you're not going to support them you know for any other reason i think there's the uh, sympathies that are there they might not be open about it uh you know they might not have themselves dealt with their sympathies uh, or their views but but they're uh, those are their people right and uh, because trump is their guy 
and Trump lost. And so whoever is supporting, you know, the opposite side, of course, you know, has to be uh, the bad guy. But, you know, just to close this point, uh, there, there really is no uh, terrorism or, or extreme violence coming from uh, the left, quote unquote, certainly not to the level that we see on the far right or even Islamist uh, attackers. Uh, there was the one incident, right, in uh, Seattle with uh, the Michael, I can't remember his last name. He shot the Proud Boy member and then the police effectively executed him, uh, uh, trying to arrest him, quote unquote. We, I mean, there is a whole wave of leftist terrorism uh, for, you know, the scholars, but, you know, we're not, obviously we're not at that, you know, we've already seen that leftist uh, terrorism. We're not seeing that now. What we're seeing is really the right, the right has risen. And it's no accident that in the last four years, the number of hate groups have gone up, you know, a bazillion percent. Uh, it's because, you know, it's because of Donald Trump, right? Donald Trump uh, legitimized it. Uh, he he basically encouraged people to let their inner fascist out. And you can see, I mean, I, I saw over the course of those four years how the narrative just, it just, you know, everything just took a dive uh, from, you know, truth and, and fake news. And all of this stuff is really can be placed at the foot of uh, the orange cap idol. Mubin, you, you make a really good point in bringing up the fact that there is Antifa violence. Uh, and, and in our article in War on the Rocks, Michael Kenny and I acknowledge that. Uh, I wrote another piece with uh, Jason Blazakis in Slate uh, after Trump threatened to designate uh, Antifa as a, as a terrorist organization. And we walked through all of the many reasons why that uh, wouldn't you know, be a good move, but, you know, not the least of which is that it's not an organization. But we also you know, make it very clear that if things change, uh, you know, it warrants revisiting that. And, and you know, I'm not an apologist for left-wing violence. Um, you know, and people say, oh, you're trying to carry water for Democrats. I don't think Democrats represent Antifa or left-wing violence. And I'm not even a Democrat. I'm, I'm, I'm an independent. So I just try to call it like I see it. And the way I see it right now is that right-wing extremism is disproportionately a more significant threat. I do think that we're going to see an increase in left-wing violence this year. Uh, and I think as we have more right-wing violence, we're, we're likely to see more left-wing violence. Remember, Antifa is anti-fascist, right? If you have more fascists, you're going to have more anti-fascists. Um, and we can, you know, get into these concepts of reciprocal radical radicalization and um, all the other, you know, things from the academic literature that make sense. Uh, but to me, it's, it's just, uh, it's not like you're picking a side and that's your tribe. You know, I analyze terrorism and political violence. That, that's, that's the way I operate. I don't pick a side and say, I'm going to defend them. And I'm going to attack the other side. But that's business as usual in the country these days. That's the way we do politics. Yeah, I would just add to that. I think the last thing I agree with what everybody said, um, this is a very agreeable group. Um, but we, uh, I think, you know, the other thing that, it, you know, that the terminology is frustrating in lots of ways because the whole... The idea of the left and the right spectrum, I think, is fragmenting in ways that we're, we're kind of watching it happen. Um, and so, you know, you can talk about Antifa, we can talk about anarchism, we can talk about, you know, left-wing violence, right-wing violence, anti-government violence, but then you have these strange new coalitions, you know, kind of forming. And when you see anti-vaxxers and anti-government folks, you see, um, uh, you know, the QAnon folks who there's anti-Semitism very clearly within QAnon conspiracy theories, but it's attracting people from, from a, a bigger range of, of on the political spectrum. 
Um, and I think we have recent terrorists citing ecological justifications, environmental justifications, and what's called ecofascism in ways that complicate, I think, these ideas between I, you know, ideological motivations that we typically think of as belonging to the left and, and terrorist actions that were clearly anti-immigrant or anti-Muslim or anti-multiculturalism, um, let's say, white supremacist extremism um, on the far right. And so I think that's just something we have to grapple with, not just in this country, that we, do, we don't have even our own agencies agreeing on, on what to call this, right? So we have some white supremacist extremism uh, labels. We have some uh, racial and ethnically motivated violent extremism labels. Um, we nobody, you know, really understands what to do with the incels, and sometimes they overlap incels and male supremacists. I think we we need to figure out kind of how we use this terminology. But then globally, it's even more problematic because other countries are using right wing extremism, right wing radicalism, um, you know, different terminology to refer to things within their own countries that. Um, you know, need at some point just the classification uh, within our own country that makes it difficult to count these acts across the states and try to understand them, um, which has to do in part with the lack of tools at the federal level, but also these very difficult nature of counting and classifying um, crimes and terrorist acts internationally, I think is going to get even more complicated as we face these fragmentations of ideological motivation. And I think that's a great segment into what Colin said earlier on in the talk about how the US really, in a sense, is kind of unprepared for the future and what we're seeing right now and what potentially will happen down the line. And this is on policy level and also on legal level. So I wanted to discuss that a bit. And also like the broader question of what does all of this mean for the incoming administration and the U.S. in general. Not everyone all at once, please. Uh, <laughs> you know, can I just uh, just piggyback off of uh, what was being said earlier about just the unpreparedness, right? And I think uh, what's going to have to occur is some kind of, again, back to the concept of digital literacy and critical thinking skills. Maybe maybe these things need to be introduced into uh, an education curriculum where from public school into secondary schools. And, and of course, I mean, it's already there in, uh, in, in post-secondary education, but most people don't have the privilege or the money uh, to go to post-secondary education. So we, we really need to get these critical thinking skills, um, you know, disseminated to the public very young. Uh, and who knows how this is gonna happen or what it's gonna look like or who's even supposed to do that. I'll leave those people to figure that out. But, uh, but there really is a crisis uh, when it comes to this lack of critical thinking. And uh, with, you know, with uh, internet companies, just, uh, I mean, you know, slapping on a label to Donald Trump's tweets, like, you know, this claim of election fraud is disputed. It does nothing. It does nothing. And they still allow these messages to proliferate, to spread, to spread. And then, and then we're asking ourselves, hey, why do people believe this stuff? Well, we're allowing this stuff to spread and for people to take this in uncritically. So, so maybe that's going to be one, uh, one solution towards, uh, you know, dealing with this issue. But, but let me just lastly say, uh, certainly like uh, John Horgan said at the beginning, this is going to be a generational problem. And if it's not tackled as soon as possible, then it will just last longer than it 
if I may jump in, this is John again. Um, so, you know, the, 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 if you study terrorism long enough, you, you sort of come around to the view that, look, it, it's, it's always going to be diverse, you know, different kinds and different flavors of terrorism are always going to come and go. And, and this is in no way, obviously, to minimize uh, those trends, um, because, you know, Diversity, I think, is one of the defining qualities of terrorism. But, but I want I want to just go back to a point I, I made at the beginning. Again, we are so dangerously unprepared for what might come. Um, we had an opportunity to come together as a country to fight COVID, and it just ripped people apart. I mean, it, it has ripped families apart, um, let alone the country. And, and, you know, uh, I think Mubeem, you mentioned earlier, you know, you talked about motivated reasoning, the fact that we are just unwilling to consider any evidence that, that might not support the conclusions that we're holding on to. I think the challenge really is about critical thinking. It's about learning to have a civil discussion again, because we're, we are in, it's just so cliche, but we are really in uncharted territory here. And, and this stuff ain't going to suddenly fix itself on the 20th of January. Let me be the devil's advocate on the critical thinking topic, which I completely agree. But from personal experiences, uh, there are just some people that are not willing to accept anything but what they want to believe whatever source that's coming from so how do we challenge that because it's almost like a little kid putting their fingers in their ears not wanting to listen to anything else but what they want to listen to well as the father of two two young kids who want to don't want to listen to me um toddlers <laughs> often don't you know and i think there's you know some some parallels there with uh, my family and friends. Uh, you know, I'm from a, uh, from Long Island, from a, a blue collar uh, family and, and background, a lot of folks in military and, um, you know, construction, et cetera. Not to say that there's a particular profile, but um, I definitely have a lot of people in my family that I, I disagree with regularly. Um, I think, you know, there, there are certain people I'm just, we're never going to see eye to eye and they're going to believe what they're going to believe. But I think there are other people who I disagree with that I consider at least more reasonable and open-minded. And I don't try to sell them on my worldview. Um, all I'll simply do is say, you know, here's an alternative. I've read this in, you know, the New York Times or Politico or whatever, and it's worth looking at. And if they are open-minded, they will look at it and they may not admit that, oh, wow, that, that's a good point. But you're at least kind of engaging with them. You're not trying to say like, you know, you're wrong and I'm right and here's why. Um, I just really try to point out other sources of information um, that, that are viable, that I consider viable um, and leave it at that because, you know, otherwise you do, you, you risk ruining relationships over politics. And that's just not something, look, frankly, I don't want to know the politics of most of my relatives. That's one of the reasons I don't have Facebook and I think I'm better off for it, um, you know, because, uh, I even have many family members that are that are diehard Trumpers that never cared about politics themselves. That's an interesting phenomenon to me. People that never cared about politics and now all of a sudden are diehard Trump fans. What what happened? Why do you all of a sudden care and care so much? And after Trump, will you stop caring again? I'm curious, and I don't know the answer to that. Yeah, I would just add. Um, I think there's sort of two different 
two different aspects to this phenomenon of, you know, how do you reach people? One is I think what Mobina is saying in a really preventative way or what we've been in peril been talking about is pre-preventative work, um, which is really focusing on both digital communications, media literacy work for very young, um, you know, sort of fifth graders, let's say, before, you know, in a pre-real engagement in internet, um, pre-political um, evolution, you know, pre-political exposure kinds of ways so that they recognize techniques like, you know, propaganda, scapegoating, manipulation, and in the same ways that those digital communications classes and curricula have been set up to help them understand what their digital footprints look like and how to safeguard their privacy and what a predator looks like um, who might be trying to manipulate them online, that there are other kinds of things that might be trying to manipulate them online. And, and we have found, you know, drawing on public health research that teenagers in particular are pretty pretty receptive to the idea that, you know, they don't want to be manipulated. And so, um, you know, the one of the things that has stuck a lot in my head is that after years of public health research, trying to teach teenagers how to make healthier eating choices by teaching them about the long-term consequences of poor food choices for their bodies, you know, 20 years, 30 years down the road in terms of cholesterol or BMI or whatever, um, in public health classes in school, that was shown to have basically zero effect on the behavioral choices that teenagers made because, you know, these are long-term things happening down the road. But what has had an impact and research has shown is when teenagers were shown that there's evidence and they got the definitive evidence that fast food companies were manipulating them into making choices that were not in their own interests, but were rather, you know, to line the pockets of some fast food company executives, essentially, but that that, that they were, those were choices that were against their own um, health interests. Once that happened, it did change. That impact, did, that intervention did change the behavioral choices that young people made. And really interestingly, it changed the choices more for boys than it did for girls. And so, you know, we take away from that, um, that using Kurt Braddock's inoculation kind of approach that you can preventatively help people understand what manipulation looks like, what conspiracy theory frameworks look like, what scapegoating and other kinds of propaganda and persuasive terrorist messaging techniques look like in ways that might help them make different behavioral choices when they encounter those. Um, so that's one thing. I think the other thing is, what do you do about the people who've already encountered it, which is what Colin's talking about. That is a much harder um, nut to crack, I think. Uh, and, you know, can you put the genie back in the bottle kind of question that's always been tossed around. And I think, I think Colin's right that you, you can't really do it on an ideological basis, but you might still be able to do it on a source integrity basis or trying to help people understand, um, here's some alternative viewpoints or, and maintain empathy and connection with people. And I think that isolation, um, you know, doesn't help the polarization. Uh, this is John again. I think that's absolutely key. You know, I mean, let's let's take an extreme example for a second. If we were face to face with a hardcore terrorist, you know, thinking, well, I'm not going to, you know, I'm not going to get this person to talk to me or, or there's nothing that we have in common. I think, you know, building rapport is, 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 is something that can be done. It's not not rocket science. Um, you know, establishing that connection, finding common ground is since time immemorial. I mean, it is it is um, uh, the first step to um, 
to challenging someone's beliefs and challenging is not the right word because you know i mean it's it, we often do these things clumsily and we end up just making the problem worse but um um, we know how to do these things. So, but it's but it's going to it's going to take um, it's going to take good faith from 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 all sides. And I really like this this the point about um, exploitation. I mean, we're we're all being exploited. We're all being manipulated, whether we're on the left or the right. And 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 the the we we give so much of ourselves away on social media, and we allow ourselves to be to be bit players in these games. And I think some of it is going to have to be um uh it's some of it's going to have to involve ourselves looking in the mirror to figure out how we can fundamentally change our own behavior for the better too easier said than done i accept that yeah and i I would just say too i think there are some interesting lessons from overseas not just in directly combating um extremism and terrorism but the number of times i have been reached out to over the last six months by international organizations or groups that typically work on peace building conflict resolution um, election monitoring and election safety issues, right, who are now coming for the first time to develop programming in the U.S. And they're typically working in Congo or, you know, Burundi or someplace that, it, you know, that really has been, have, have experienced kind of genocide style conditions or genocide type conditions um, and are now turning to work in the U.S. to reduce polarization or to um, promote empathy and safety and to sort of heal and bring people together and, and experiment with different ways to do that. That It's really striking how many different groups are pivoting. And I hate to say that that's the, the state that we're in in the States is to compare it to, you know, some of the most conflict-ridden countries in the world. And we're not there yet, I think, but, but these trends that are keeping us all up at night are really worrisome. And I think um, there are real things to be learned from places that have recovered from violent conflict at scale and that have been struggling with trust in government and community um, relationships across different ethnic groups. And uh, and unfortunately, I think the lessons from those places are going to be ever more salient for the U.S. in the years to come. So why don't we open it up? Oh, Mubin, would you like to say something? Oh, just, yeah, just one last thing, just on the uh, on the uh, literacy and, and education for young people. You know, I actually did one of these, uh, I've done a few of these sessions at the high school level, and just to kind of see, you know, how they react to it. And, and my approach is to, to make it engaging, make it fun. And some of the images that I use, you know, I deliberately pick. So for example, there's this one uh, pretty popular one, or uh, well-known one, I guess, at least I hope in our circles, where on one side you have a, a white American girl holding a Bible and holding an AR-15 with an American flag behind her. And then juxtapose that is uh, a Hezbollah member, you know, with a woman holding a Quran, holding an AK-47 and the Hezbollah flag behind her, you know, and just to kind of show you. And then the, the, the caption reads, what's the difference? And, and I think, you know, they, they really like these things because it's not, you're not being preachy preachy. You're using a very visual approach, which is something that they, uh, that they live and breathe. And so I think it can be done. These sorts of, you know, critical thinking skills, they can be done. It's just a matter of educators knowing how to construct these things and how to deliver them. And, and we have the solutions. I mean, we, you know, we have the technology, but uh, it's really just a matter of now implementing things and and so now over the next four years let's see uh let's see if there's a government push to kind of get these things or whether it's even through 
some of the funded programs through the, the DHS grants that, that were recently given. Whatever it is, I think we all collectively know what the solution is. We just got to really, you know, get to actually implement. And I want to open up it up to final thoughts, but I know Cynthia Miller-Idris needs to go because she has a prior scheduled event as well. So I just want to thank you so much for coming on the show and you can move on to yours as we finish this up. Thanks, jumping from one Zoom to the next. It's <laughs> such a pleasure to be a part of this conversation. And I'm sorry that I can't stay longer, but um, but enjoy. And uh, I will connect with each of you separately later, I'm sure. Thanks so much, Chelsea, for hosting us. Thank you. All right, bye, everyone. Yes, and I know Colin has to jump soon too. So I will open it up to final thoughts and maybe we can let Colin go first, potentially, since everyone's got, like I said, busy schedules. <laughs> I just think, you know, somebody mentioned, I think it was John, maybe um, empathy. And it seems somewhat simple, but at the same time, so far away, right? I mean, not to, to try to get philosophical here, but just the the basic act of, you know, agreeing to disagree, right? And leaving it at that and, and not vilifying somebody because they don't believe the same things as you. Um, you know, the older I get, the more I understand why no politics, no religion at the dinner table was, was a rule. Uh, you know, and, and it's just, uh, we're, I, I think we're in a very, I, I don't want to be a pessimist, but I guess as a New Yorker, it's in my DNA. Um, I think we're in a very bad place. And I worry that uh, the last four years will leave really deep, impactful scars on our national psyche. Um, and, and I do kind of wonder, you know, how we'll recover from this and, and if we'll ever fully recover. And, and in the meantime, we'll be left with, I think, um, an increase in acts of domestic terrorism. Um, and I really hope and pray that we don't normalize these the way we have school shootings, where uh, you know, I'll have a friend text me who's living in Europe and say, oh, my God, I saw seven people were shot today in Tennessee. And honestly, I'm like, so what? Like, oh, really? Well, the, the number must not have been high enough because it's not even on the news. And it's just like you shrug your shoulders and you're like, yeah, that's that's what we call Tuesday in the United States. We've become so callous to, uh, you know, mass shootings that it barely makes the news. I mean, it's not it's just like ho-hum. And I, and, I, and I really hope, I know terrorism is kind of the opposite, right? We pay so much attention to if uh, a jihadi in France stabs one person and no one dies, you know, I'll be asked to come on CNN to talk about it. <laughs> but we'll have, you know, a school shooting and it's like, ah, you know, uh, mental health, uh, all the other things, but it's not time to talk about guns. And um, I just really, uh, I hope we end up in a, in a different place. Uh, and the onus is on each of us individually, and especially those that have a voice, uh, the professors among us, to speak truth to power and, and call it like we see it. So thanks again for having me on. I really appreciate it. And it's always great to be on with um, you know, the folks on this program who I admire and respect very much. Thank you. And Dr. Horgan and Mubin? Uh, sure. Um, um... Gosh, I don't. I, I certainly don't have anything profound or optimistic to offer at this point. Um, I, I, you know, again, I mean, I, I I'll echo um, what Colin said. Um, I, I think we're going to have to, you know, whenever we can somehow get enough distance and perspective on on everything that has happened. I mean, I, 
I couldn't help but take a glance over at my TV in the corner there, and, and I'm seeing, you know, 308,000 people dead from COVID. I mean, I can't, I can't even process that. I cannot, I, I just, my brain cannot process what that means. And, 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 you know, I know we're all here to talk about terrorism and, and, and it's important that we do um, because this is, this is the thing that we have devoted our, 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 our lives to, to studying. I think the legacy of the past four years surpasses terrorism and the threat of terrorism in ways that we do not understand yet. And that's fundamentally why I'm concerned about, about, about that legacy and about those impacts. Um, I think we are going to have to learn how to be human beings again. I think we are going to have to learn what, I think we're gonna to have to learn and accept and embrace the value of empathy um, because we have, um, we have, we have a, we've got a pretty tough road ahead of us. And um, yeah, I'm not, I'm not especially optimistic, um, but I think we, 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 we have at least a sense of where we need to get to. I'm um, being here just uh, I'll uh, try to round everything up, finish it off. Uh, great comments, of course, by my colleagues, uh, wonderful people, uh, you know, professionals, mentor professionals. Um, my really my closing thoughts are, are really to echo what Professor Horgan is saying is that we really do need to learn human again. Uh, we need to even for ourselves at an individual level. And I'm saying this for myself, too, that I also get caught up in it. You know, I, I it's like. Uh, you know, Colin was saying about who cares, like what Ann Coulter is saying, why is she trending? And uh, and it's it's horrible because sometimes I see the people, you know, their names trending and I'm thinking, oh my God, is it because, you know, they've passed away? Uh, and 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 so, you know, we we all get caught up in this and, and it's only those of us who actually make it a point to kind of check ourselves that, you know, we, we're, we're reflective about how we feel and how we think and and how we're reacting to the things that are going on. Um, you know, again, I unfortunately, of course, I'm not gonna have an optimist note either. Sorry to say, uh, especially when John said that, you know, I started laughing, I was on mute and it was good. I started, you know, belly laughing, but uh, it's it's sad in a way, right? Uh, I mean, it really is sad uh, for real when, when you hear how many people have died. Uh, you know, there's like over 3000 people dying a day you know, these are like 9-11 attacks that are happening on a daily basis. And yet look at the way that people are reacting. When you read at how, when you read about how people reacted, even during the Spanish flu, you had these conspiracy theory mongers and people who come up, came up with all sorts of, of ideas and theories as to why, you know, they shouldn't, you know, uh, in, you know practice these protocols. And, uh, and it's unfortunate, you know, we're, we're seeing it everywhere. It's this, uh, a very cavalier, privileged rejection of authority. You know, you can't tell me what to do uh, type approach. And uh, it's, 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 really, it's really sad that amidst all of this, we're, we're trying also, there's a terrorism and, and like Colin was talking about school shooters, like it becoming normalized, and especially up in Canada. Like there was almost this joke where, you know, you know, it's a big deal in Canada when there's, you know, news of a shooting. Uh, because, you know, there's one shooting and maybe two people died and that's like a huge thing. But in fact, we've also had some recent events where, you know, a number, many, many people that are like, I think it was like 12 people were killed in on the East Coast. Um, and even that in the Canadian context, kind of like, well, 
because the, the guy, the, the offender didn't fit the profile, so to speak. And Colin really hit the nail on the head about how we perceive when a, a foreign, quote unquote, a scary brown guy commits an attack somewhere over there, as opposed to when regular Joe White guy commits an attack and how we perceive these things. So I think there, there's, there are a number of things that we need to break down as individuals, our own biases, the perspectives with which you know, we approach these issues. And unless we don't, I mean, the first step is, of course, talking about it and getting people to a common understanding and then, and then really moving on it, actually implementing things, uh, programs and, and public relations or whatever, whatever it is that we got to do, we just need to get on with it. It's as simple as that. Thank you very much for having us, Chelsea. Uh, really happy to be with uh, the great colleagues that, that we had on the on the call. So thank you very much. Bye. Same for me. We should we should do this more often. <laughs> Next time in person, hopefully. For sure, for sure, for sure. That would be great. I completely agree. This has been fantastic. Um, thank you, John and Mubin, the last remaining two. Um, but yeah, this has been a fantastic talk, and I'm sure in the coming months we'll probably have a lot more to talk about. Sadly. <laughs> I promise you we'll, we'll try to be a little bit more optimistic next time around. <laughs>